0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is July 21st, 2015, and this is episode 1608 of the Survival Podcast. And We're going to take a look at something we haven't really taken an in-depth look at in a while, the economy, and why I think the next recession is on the way, or really, more accurately, the next recession is the same recession that's never gone away, and what that means for you, and uh, what that means you should be doing about it, and why I feel this way. Today's show, um, we'll have some you know, stuff that I'll re- reference as fact, and it's some articles and things like that, but... Mostly, today's show will be about my intuition and based on my examination of history and the current state of affairs in the world. In other words, it will be largely, like most shows, my opinion. Those of you that are new to the show may think, well, who is this guy to have opinions about the economic reality of the globe Uh, because he's not a member of any kind of financial committee, he doesn't have an MBA in economics or finance or anything like that. Um, he's some redneck survivalist that with a duck farm in Texas. You know, those of you who have been around for a while would know the error of that analysis. Uh, that in 2008, I was one of the few people literally screaming over the microphone, get your money out of the stock market. I'm not sounding that alarm just yet, but I do have to say that the current potential upside of the market, specifically in index funds, through the remainder of the year is such that the risk is probably not worth the reward if things go perfectly. Uh, yeah, all redneck duck farmers from Texas talk like that. Anyway, um, just for those of you who are new to the show, I did forecast with precise accuracy not only the 2008-2009 collapse, but the then recovery. And the contrarians that were on board with the collapse were completely opposed to the recovery. I referred to this as the false recovery. And way back when, way back when, way back when I was still driving a car when I did the show. I used to do this show in my car 45 minutes to an hour a day with a little mobile recorder and a headset. I said not only would that happen, but that there would be a, a, a follow-up recession, a deeper recession, around 2015 to 2016. That was the next down dive and there would be this false recovery in the middle. And people thought I was nuts. It's over. You know, gold's going to go to $10,000, whatever. There'll be no recovery. This is the end, the end, the end and the end didn't come. And and at the time I said the 2015-2016 might be when we get the big one. In fact, I was pretty convinced it was going to be the big one. I don't think this will be the big one, but it's going to hurt. And in some ways it might hurt more and for longer than the previous recession. For more on all of that in a bit, just hang on. For right now, let's take care of doing some housekeeping. Uh, Housekeeping item one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines. Be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, And I don't prescribe treatments and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time six plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulders acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, If it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium Membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is JMBullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and that's better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that like, you need to get out of the dollar, they're going to burn it to the ground, it's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor Uh, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth roughly in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5 to 10% of your net wealth. In hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than J.M. Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from J.M. Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The episode being 1608, so we'll look at the year 1608. I have three segments for you in the TSP Wiki today. I'll choose one to read for you. The other two you can read yourself at tspwiki.com or by following the link, as always, in today's show notes. First one, Old Bushmills Irish Whiskey and the Sins of Our Fathers. I'm not going to read that one. I will say 1608 is when the official beginnings of the Bushmill uh, Whiskey Distillery started. That's kind of interesting if you like good Irish whiskey. And then I have the only nada they found was in the word Canada. You can read more about that, again, at TSP Wiki. The one I'm going to read to you guys today is the check is in the mail and in the Netherlands. The Dutch Republic uses the first recognizable checks this year called drawn notes. The actual term check won't be used until 1706. The idea of using a financial instrument to facilitate international transactions has been around since the first century, but because of the ongoing war in the Netherlands, people with a ton of money, meaning a lot of heavy coins, are trying to protect that money. They have deposited their coins with cashiers who protect those deposits for a reasonable fee. The fee is a percentage of the money being held, so there is competition to attract biggest depositors by offering better services. Some cashiers are allowing clients to write a note and draw a check from his client's account. The client writes the note, directing the cashier to pay a certain amount to the payee listed on the note. Those drawn notes are used locally instead of internationally and are the beginning of the modern checking system. My take by Alex Shrugged. I need A check need not be a piece of paper. I saw a man write out a check on the back of a closet door. Naturally, his bank charged an extra processing fee, but they honored the door check. You can create your own money using third-party checks. Banks discourage this practice, but if I write out a check to you to pay my debt, you can sign that check over to a third party to pay your own debt. If you do so, you are using my check like money. As long as each third party accepts my check as a reliable payment, my check can be passed back and forth all around town like real money. I'd like to say that banks don't want to do this because they don't like competition, but in fact, they're trying to reduce fraud. Some banks still allow third-party checks, though. My bank allowed me to do it last week. Um, I'm going to ignore the door check because I don't know if that's literal, and I'd like to know more about it in the comments, Alex, if somebody actually wrote a check on a door. That sounds a little crazy to me. I am going to talk about the competition thing because this fits our episode today about money and the economy and the way that people that run the money run the world. And I'll tell you why banks don't like third-party checks. Is there a a possibility of fraud? Yes. Do they really care? No. Because it always ends up costing one of the people, not the bank itself. The bank prints its own money in many ways, so uh, your third-party check uh, bouncing is your problem, not theirs. In fact, they'll charge the original person who wrote the check fee for bouncing the check, regardless of how many hands pass through. Now, They would prefer this not to happen, and all rules and policies in the banking system have both legitimate reasons and larger reasons, and that concern is what I would call a legitimate concern. But the larger reason that banks dislike third-party checks is every time you do it, it costs them money, not directly through competition, in the way you would think of the word, but every time money moves through a bank, money is made by the bank by moving the money through the bank. If money flows, the fees to the bank grows. That's a good way to remember this. Even fees that you don't see. There is a a really complex world behind the banking system, but let me just put it to you this way. The more money in a bank and the more money a bank moves, the more money a bank makes. And the more money a bank is able to create. So while your little pissant $250 check that you signed over to your uncle... That he then takes to the bank doesn't seem like a big deal. It's kind of like the reason they tell you they don't want you to throw rocks in the Grand Canyon. If everybody did it, it would matter. So that's part of the issue there. I think the bigger thing, though, is banks are now trying to do away with checks and cash. They want to move all money to an electronic format so that every time it moves, it moves through them. This is one of the many reasons they hate things like Bitcoin. Uh, that is their new competition and their new uh, model, which is all money is ones and zeros. It makes it much easier to control. It makes it much easier to, to funnel. It makes it much easier to expand and contract. And it makes it much easier to charge fees against. And it makes sure none of the evil little individuals are able to conduct their business privately and thereby avoid the fees that the banks charge. This is also magnified through the credit card system, which is basically a plastic check where you can write a check for money you do not yet have. Okay, credit card is a legal way to bounce a check, promising that you'll pay the bill later. This then results in fees paid to the bank, who actually issues the credit card. So we think of the bank and the credit card companies as different. Of course, they're not. They're the same companies. Maybe different divisions. So now the bank gets to charge you interest on money that you spent that you did not have. But you actually created that money for them when you spent it. Because that's how we create money today. We create money by borrowing. All money created in the United States and all modern first world nations today. And most second and third world nations is created through the act of borrowing. Money is lent into existence. When you take your credit card and you go down and buy some garbage with it from China with your plastic, you literally are creating money for the bank. When they give you the money, they don't give you money. They do it the same way that they do give you money for a mortgage. They create the money from thin air and then charge you interest on money that doesn't exist. Then they put the money on their balance sheet on the receivable side as money that exists. And it does. You have now become their servant, their indentured servant, Another word for that would be their slave for that money. They have now mortgaged you and your word and your promise to create money out of thin air that they charge interest on. You have to work and pay back. Of course, they also then charge a fee to the merchant who took it. And then they charge a fee moving it through the banking system. This is why if you think it's about government, you're missing the point. Imagine if you would an industry where you can basically charge a tax on every transaction that happens everywhere in the world, whether it's subject to taxes by government or not. You have the modern financial industry and the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve systems that we have in existence in the United States and through other central banks like the Central Bank of Europe. Third-party checks? I was just getting started. Now we have a complete system of monetary controls. And I went to this depth with it to you today so that you could understand something. Many of the things that will be coming during the next recession that we would call capital controls, ways to deprive you of your ability to take your own money and do what you will with it, will not come from government. They will come from the banking system. They will come from people that call themselves the capitalists. A little girl with a lemonade stand is what you think of when you hear capitalist. This is why you can't communicate with the left. When they hear capitalists, they're talking about the people that we've been talking about. Guess what? Neither one of you like them. Neither one of you understand each other. Your vocabulary has been destroyed. And neither one, neither side, will understand what's really going on in the next recession unless you pay attention to the things that I'm going to tell you about today. We'll get to that in a minute. Before we do, let's take a look at the Bob Wells Plant of the Week uh Every week, Bob Wells brings you a new plant that you can plant in your own backyard to help feed your family long-term. These are perennial plants that come back year after year. Today, we have the Lee Lee Jujubee Tree. This plant is adaptable from zones 5 through 9. That's mostly the United States. It's also called the Chinese Date. It's a round-shaped fruit, reddish-brown, dry, and wrinkled, sweet and chewy like dates when fully ripe in early fall. It is attractive and easy to grow tree, hardy, drought-resistant, virtually pest- and disease-free. It is cell-fertile, but if you want to boost production, plant a lang or other variety along with it. Bob Will's Nursery specializes in edible landscape. Plants trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Anyway, Lee Jujubi and all other Jujubis are awesome. Uh, Right now, we have gone from getting monsoon-like rains in uh, April and May to no rain for about four weeks and temperatures in the hundreds. The ground is cracked. Uh, While the lakes are still filled, the ground is dry, except where earthworks have helped with that. I have plants suffering everywhere once again in the summer. Some were new plants planted this spring and last fall, and some are older plants even that are suffering. Every cherry tree that I have is really sick and unhappy looking, except for the Hanson's bush cherries, which are going to be more of those going in based on the results over the last two years. Um, and some other trees are having problems. Jujubes, honey badgers, they don't give a shit. They don't care. Alcohol and soil, don't care. Drought, don't care. Intense heat, don't care. Growing like gangbusters. I think next year they'll be in the ground for two and a half years and when, when I expect to have some of my first jujubes for harvest. Um, I had one this year that came on rather low, and the ducks uh, ate it, so I didn't get even that little one that came on. But definitely, if you have harsh environments, these are a good plant to grow. And if you're looking to set up an orchard where you want to sell in a niche markets, if you have an Asian community around you, specifically Chinese, and there may be more of them in the future, just saying, um, this is a great plant. This is a plant that they uh, that they know from home and is very difficult to find, far more difficult to find than goji berries, which can be bought dried and ordered through the mail. This is a plant you really generally want fresh or freshly off the tree, anyway, when they are dried on the tree. Check it out at bombellsnursery.com. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you like the show and you like what we do and you think it's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining Just Go to the survivalpodcast.com, Click on members. And what I'm going to tell you today will probably save you a hell of a lot more money than even the great discounts that are in there. I'll leave it at that for today. And let's get into the main topic of today's show. So let me tell you what I think's going on. I'm going to read the show notes today like a script in the beginning here because I think that this is one of those times where it warrants doing it. Generally, I don't use a script at all. I use some bullet points. But here's what I've penned for today or keyboarded for today. Hold on, boys and girls. Multiple recessions are on the way. Multiple? Yep. Canada is in a recession due to the oil slump. China is headed into recession as we speak, and China's recession will put Australia into recession. Greece and Spain will likely soon cascade all of Europe into one as well. I can hear you now quoting Ron White. Close. I thought he was talking about me there for a second. There's a link to all of this stuff, including the Ron White bit, you might want to check out in the show notes today. Well, sorry to break the news to you guys, but if you think Canada, Australia, the EU, and China can all have recessions and not have the U.S. recession go with it, it ain't going to happen. Want more bad news? Officially, the recession of 2008-2009 ended in late o nine to mid-09, or six years ago. Well, typically we never make it 10 years in the best of times without at least a minor recession. The question at this point is not if a recession is coming and will it affect us, The questions are, when will it get here and how badly will it affect us? Sadly, I don't know. If I did, I would make a few million with hedge bets and not care. I would even tell you guys how and when to cash in too. There may be some money to be made, but I will leave advice on that to our expert council member, John Pugliano. What I can tell you is personally, right now, I am moving more and more to conservative and a cash heavy position. The big question for most preppers is, is this the big one? My gut is no. Keep in mind, I said the big one would be after a false recovery, a marked drop in unemployment, and likely to occur in late 2015 to mid-2016, as long ago as 2009, when when many were claiming that recession was the big one. So why do I now disagree with myself? And the rest of that, we'll just leave go. Um, I'll start out with answering that question, why I disagree with myself. Because when I looked at the landscape in 2008, and knew that that big drop was coming, that big foot on the throat, I, and I, I knew it would be largely tied to the uh, mortgage meltdown. I analyzed the way the the, the economy the way that most people do, and that is with a basic understanding. This 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 just can't go on forever. This is illogical. And what I looked at on the other side of it was, well, they can they can prop all this up, but in the end. The municipal debt and the derivatives are going to kill us. We have trillions, quadrillions on it. A, a quadrillion dollars in, in derivatives out there, which I won't get into today, but just think about that number. Quadrillion. And these are all bets against bets against bets that all created more money. The, the actual amount of money that's in play in the global economy is insane. It's far beyond what we think it is. And remember, all money is debt. So that's how much, this quadrillion dollars in unpaid debts, unbacked derivatives, just the derivatives. And I looked at the U.S. national debt and it, it just soaring and saying, Hey, it's going to be $20 trillion by 2018, 2019. $20 trillion. And I looked at people like the comptroller that was a comptroller or the, the chief bean counter of the United States under Bush and Clinton. Uh, Bush the first anyway. And uh, David Walker saying, Hey, we got $150 trillion in unfunded liabilities. Let me tell you what an unfunded liability is if you don't know. An unfunded liability means money that we know that we will eventually have to pay that we already know we will not have. We have no source of funding for We have no projections to say the money is going to be there. When we look at Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the interest on the debt, all of the big non-negotiable costs of running the United States government, right? When we look at those, we see between now and 2050 100 and 30 to 150 trillion, depending on whose numbers you believe, of dollars we know, we know, we know we will not have. So, when I looked at all that, and I looked at where we were, and I realized there was a way to reset the table, my thought was when this happens again, the people doing it are going to know the jig is up, they're going to clean off the casino tables one more time, and they're going to haul ass there's a few things that changed. One, I got a much more longer contextual view of the economy over the last eight years. A greater understanding that that recession wasn't a recession. It was part of the larger recession that's been going on since the 1970s and never went away. That all of the prosperity between the 1970s and today is nothing but an underlying erosion of the middle class. And if it could go on for that long, it may it may not definitely would but may be able to go along long long, along longer. The next thing was the people that were behind it, the people that were extracting the blood of the middle class in this country, would need to have a place to go, or they would need to be able to basically part out the United States to their foreign contingencies which meant that some foreign contingency would ha- that had the, the wherewithal, the power, and the might to compete with the United States had to be in a position where they would be better off than us during the next recession, and it very much looked like that was the case. Well, right now, it's like Australia, the United Kingdom, the rest of the EU, and I separate the United Kingdom and the rest of the EU because they operate independently, um and the Chinese all have what I would call cancer. So does this country. Now, there's different types of cancer, and if we look at cultural cancer, we have probably the most terminal case of cultural cancer of any modern nation. We really do. We're killing ourselves at this point. But financially, as bad as our cancer is, they all have equally bad or worse cancer right now. There's no one to step up. The only nation that is starving off this, va- this this recession, even a little bit right now, that's a major economic player in the world, is India. And they just don't have it together enough yet. So there's nowhere to go. And there's no cronies to bring in. And I do think that the long-term plan is to bring Chinese economic resources into the United States. I, I do think that's the plan. And exactly how that's going to happen, I don't know. But they're not in the position to do it right now. China will be the leading economy in the world soon. But right now, they're still talking about 7 to 10% growth when their economic mouthpieces come out publicly facing, when they're looking straight into a recession that's about to hit. Which means their numbers don't match their mouths at all. In other words, there's too much turmoil. And in this recession, once again, as bad as it will be here... Money will be better off here than most other places. The economic superpowers of the world will push their money into two things, commodities and dollars. And as long as they want to put their money into dollars, we can keep the pyramid scam running for at least a little longer. That's how I feel things are today. Now, this this is where people don't get it. Whenever I soften... Where we're headed economically with there is more time or it's not as bad as you think, what people think I'm saying, it's all going to be sunshine, rainbows, and unicorn farts. That is not what I'm saying. I believe the recession that we're going into will be akin to, but not quite as bad in numbers, as the 8 09 recession. I believe its impact will actually hurt more for longer. It will take longer for all the economic uh rabbit out of a hat bullshit from the Fed to to pull us out with an illusion that things are better than they are. Right now, if you look at the numbers, this nation has recovered like gangbusters under a democratic spend and spend and spend administration. It really has. If you look at just the numbers. Now I know you're gonna say, well the the, the debt has increased, yeah, but see nobody really cares. I know you do, but in the end, most people don't care about the debt, including the people loaning us money. They don't care about the debt as long as they feel we can service it. They don't care how much money we owe as long as they feel we can make our payments to them. And right now, they have no reason to believe that for any time in the foreseeable future, we won't be able to. When I say if you look at the numbers, I'm talking about the unemployment numbers, which is what I said would get much, much better, and the stock market. I said when the next recession comes, and this is during the the heat of the prior recession, that the stock market will be on an all-time high, and everybody will be bought back in, and everybody will think that good times are ahead. We're almost there. We're almost to that point. They've almost sold that bill of goods to the American people. And even if they haven't sold it as well as I thought they would have, they've sold it well enough that they've made something very interesting happen. They've driven down the price of almost every major commodity over the last five to ten years, specifically over the last five. Gold, way down. Silver, way down. Those are the ones preppers always look at. Gold because I'd like to own it, silver because I do. Because preppers believe in silver being better because I can buy more of it for less money and don't realize if you have $10,000 in gold or $10,000 in silver and either one of them goes up 20%, you've made the same profit. Because we don't think of silver and gold that way in the prepper community. We think of it as a barter item, which I think is a purpose for silver, but not the only purpose for silver. And we would do better and well to see the totality of the value of those two commodities. But we also need to prop our little heads up and look at other commodities. Number one, oil. Oil's trading right now at about $50 a barrel. During the height of the last recession, it was up over $150 a barrel. The Russian economy just doesn't really work with oil under75 dollars a barrel. That's why the Rule's in trouble. This is why. this is why Putin is pissed. He feels like the world has conspired to destroy the Russian economy, and on some levels they have. though I don't think destroying Russia is the goal, I think it's the result. Russia is the part of the anti hegemon. Now I don't like governments, but I'm not saying Russia is good guys and that I want to po- you know pony up uh with Putin and hang out with him and, and play canasta and drink vodka. What I'm saying is that Russia refuses, more than any nation in the world with any economic power and any military power, to play along with the banksters. China does it. China plays right along. India plays right along, okay? Brazil plays right along. But out of that, that brick alliance, the Brazil-Russia-India-China alliance, it's Russia that says, you know what? <laughs> if you're a member of, of the Morgan or the Rothschild family and you come to Russia, we're going to arrest you. Okay? Russia doesn't play ball with the banksters. They have their own version, but they don't play with the global banksters very well. So if something happens to harm them, the rest of the group doesn't give a shit. Tough. You should play ball with us, and then maybe we figure out a way to make it not hurt so bad for you. So they're a byproduct of this. The real goal is pushing the value of the commodities down while pushing the prices of the equities up so that the average American starts throwing money into the stock market by restarting up their 401k or spending money on credit. Either way, you're putting money into the stock market as far as they are concerned. Here's why. When you go buy a new iPhone and you don't have the money, okay, and you have $560 to, to get your new iPhone, and you go and you take your, your Visa or your MasterCard you slide it, it's not Visa or MasterCard that make the money, it's the bank that issued the Visa or MasterCard. Now you think, well, Apple made the money. AT&T or T-Mobile made the money, right? Well, they made the money that was created, but the bank made something better. They made money on the books, even though the money exists somewhere else, with your promise to repay it to them. They can monetize that debt a variety of ways, and they can buy things like stocks, including their own stocks, diluting the number of shareholders paid in a dividend and making their own dividends look better, attracting more money into their stocks and more money into their banks so that they can do that again. They can also buy other equities and other stocks and other mutual funds. Now, they don't do this the way you do. They don't dollar cost average buying a couple hundred bucks a month. They do this in the billions of dollars. And gee, I don't know if you're aware of this, but all of the banks in the world that are major banks have these people that run them, that talk to each other, and they also have members inside the Federal Reserve System and the other global central banks. So they can move their money in consort with each other, which means they can specifically decide, hey, let's have all of our assets that we're going to put into equities all go into this sector and thereby drive that sector up, and then drive another sector up, and over time, a rising tide floats all boats. In this same period, and I want to stop for a second and explain what today is. Today's show is about my instincts, not charts, and what economists say. Okay, This is about my instincts and my understanding of the way things have worked in the past. What usually happens in the run-up to an election, especially after two terms. When stocks die, we know that commodities fly and vice versa. And China's coming recession is going to suck. right? I know these things. These are things I know. So with those and the instincts, I'm able to extrapolate what's going on. So And I also am able to look at facts. Like the banks have bought a shitload of gold. A shitload of gold. They're sitting on it. As the price of gold has fallen, they haven't dumped it. China's sitting on a shitload of gold. Every major nation is sitting on a shitload of gold. We'll get to where it could be time for the reset button on rebasing the currency systems, but I don't think we're there yet. I think there's still more money to be made in the casino. They're not ready to change the casino's MO yet. Okay. So they're buying all, they bought all this gold and are just sitting on it. But what they've also done is through manipulation through their partners at major brokerage firms like the Goldman Sachs have suppressed the price of, of commodities. So while you're paying more for food in the store, the cost of something like a pork future or a beef future or lean pork has gone down over the last five years. Think about that. You're paying, and there's been some little ups, With, you know, a pig virus and stuff like that. But in the end, in the end, the overall trend of every major commodity, corn, soy, wheat, gold, silver, oil, pork bellies, orange juice, cotton, rough rice, has been down for five years, all while you're paying more money for it at the store. What does this result in? This results in excessive, overwhelming profits inside the system, that you don't see, that the producers don't see, that the wholesalers don't see, because it's all skimmed off by the speculators who are not speculating. See, speculating is what you and I do with an E-Trade account. These people have so much money and are able to move it so effectively with so much control, it's not speculation, it's harvest. By inflating the cost of the commodity, but suppressing the price of or by by, by suppressing the, the commodity future, but inflating the street price, and yet not letting any real profit come up for anybody except the major corporations, like let's say Smithfield Pork, which is now owned more by Chinese and Goldman Sachs than it is by any true United States interests, they're able to consolidate the profits at the top of the corporate level and for the people skimming the money in between. Now, now you'd think, okay, well, if that's the case, stock market keeps climbing, commodities stay suppressed, skim the money, why would you ever stop? Why would you ever stop? Well, because you can't do it forever. It's an illusion. It's not real. Sooner or later, the market always tells the truth. As you devalue a currency, commodities, not just gold and silver, understand this, gold and silver are not money. Okay, I want to say that to you. If you think gold and silver are money, you don't understand anything at all about money the end gold and silver are commodities money is something created and drawing value from the economy in which it circulates gold and silver can be made money but they are not inherently money in of themselves they are a commodity just like copper and zinc okay we can coin money from copper and zinc or gold and silver. I'm not saying one's not more stable than the other, but in the end, it's still a commodity. So we need to look beyond the gold and silver commodities to all the commodities. All of these commodities are sitting there in a suppressed mode, screaming to the market, you're undervaluing me. Sooner or later, the truth becomes revealed. And the commodities thereby must appreciate in cost. When they do, when they start to come up, Profits to the corporation and to the shareholders, which are little old ladies getting dividends from Exxon, go down. As that begins to occur, money, all, there's, a, there's a fundamental rule about money. This is the one rule about money that is absolute. Money always goes where it's treated best. Okay? Wherever money is best treated, it goes. So a, a country with a good business program that has low corporate taxes attracts business. Okay. When, when commodities are rising and equities are falling, money leaves equities, which are stocks and bonds and paper assets, and goes into commodities, which are either hard commodities or paper backing hard commodities. In other words, when I buy pork futures or lean pork or pork belly, I don't buy the pig or even the meat. I buy a piece of paper that says I have control over a block of pigs. Okay. So that's how the money flows. Okay. Now, if you wanted to be a gazillionaire, all you need to be is 30 days ahead of everybody else in this in this swing. If you knew 30 days ahead, bang on the commodities were fixing to blow up, and moved all your money from equities, even if you only had twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and you moved it over, and then you knew 30 days ahead when the money flow back in equities was going to occur. And you moved it back over. And you just did that for a few cycles. You'd have more money than Forrest Gump did on his best day. You don't know that. I don't know that. And none of the people trying to sell you investment advice know that. If you knew that, you wouldn't be selling people investment advice for $997. You'd be capitalizing on it and making so much money, you wouldn't give a damn whoever gave you a dollar again for the rest of your life. Porter Stansberry. Okay? You're full of shit. And I'm going to leave something out about somebody else right now because I'm not done with my investigation yet. That makes me sick to think of. Um, That person being involved with that scumbag. But these people like Porter Stansbury that claim to know this shit, right, they don't, and I don't. The difference is I will tell you that I don't. They know almost everything I'm telling you right now, and sometimes more, but they use what they know, which is similar to what I know, to convince you they know more than they do, so you give them your money. Again, if I knew exactly when the tide would turn, like I had a tide chart of the equity to to commodity to equity flow, I wouldn't need to ask you for money for my advice. With as few people as listen to me, I'm not going to change the tides, right? So I would just tell you, and I'd be making so much money, I wouldn't care if you ever gave me a dime ever again for the rest of your life, because we'd all be rich together, right? And they change the tides to to make sure we stop doing that after a certain amount of time. Or they take you in a vault. How do you know? Well, that's all a fantasy, because this isn't going to happen. But there is somebody who knows. The people that control the institutional money know. And they move their money ahead of the tides. Because here's the secret. They can get so much leverage that they don't actually have to move the money, they just move their positioning of the money. So, Chase... You know, J.P. Morgan Chase is a huge institutional holder of equities right now. And if they took all of their money in one day and dumped them into commodities, they wouldn't be able to make anywhere near the money that they want to make. So what they actually do is use leverage in the form of things like margin and other forms of leverage to position their money before they pull it out of the equity. Okay? Then they pull it out of the equity and move it to the commodities and when they do this, or they move it to bonds, there's times when stops, drop and bonds. wherever's going to go up, they put the money there but they put the positioning with leverage in advance when they pull out the actual money it creates a tipping point in the market and if you time this to bad financial news people start panicking thereby pulling out the individual's money through the institutions mutual funds, and further exasperating the crisis, in air quotes, plunging the equities market, and sending money chasing the commodities markets. And I'm being a little oversimplified, with because with, this can be done with other things that are not that clearly delineated, but just keep it there to understand where we're heading. And when that money runs to the commodity markets... All of the leverage and the actual money of the major institutions was already there. And as the commodities are driven up, they take the profits. Because eventually the commodities run through, see that we lied where they were at the value they were at through suppressed value. When the run happens, the commodities blow through true value into excessive value. The institutions then take their profits. By moving leverage, not the money, okay, back into the equities. So they put their, their bets on the equities there first. And then they move their money. And then the equities go up, okay? And if they need some help, they just phone up their buddies at the Fed who start buying a bunch of shit. All the bad, and pull all the bad money off their books for them. They take all that money and roll it into the equities. The equities start rolling up again, and all of the people over here in the commodities market that just got in, that got in near or at the top, see the equity start the the, the, the value of the commodities start to fall, and they all bail out of all of the things that are linked to the commodity value and start bailing back into the equities market. Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. And they pay for it with your labor and your debt. It's easy to leverage money when it's not your own. It's easy to leverage money when there's no risk to you if you lose the leverage point. Somebody will bail you out. You'll call in debts from other people. Whatever it is, you're not going to pay the bill. And if you've rigged the game, if you've tilted the table so you know that more often than not, You know, red red 15 is going to show up on the wheel. You can just keep playing red 15 and know that it'll all be okay. What if you made the table to where you could basically determine whether the ball was going to fall on red or black? But then leverage, if you know anything about roulette, is though you were getting a single or double zero from the wheel when you won red or black and you knew whether it was going to be red or black. 80% 80% of the time. They can't control it all, but that's the best knowledge I can give you. The The financial institutions of the world, the the global financial institutions and the major brokerage houses, which are their lackeys and their bitches, have created a roulette wheel where they know 80% of the time versus 50% of the time whether the wheel is going to come up red or black. And they get a payout every time it comes up the way they bet as though they had bet on something like 15 red. They get a 35 to 37 to 1 payout where they should get a 2 to 1 payout on a rigged game. So this is where we're at. It's time to do it again. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes with this. Next thing's coming, no good crisis goes the waste. More regulations are coming. Regulations you can't even conceive of. Regulations you'll fight with your your father-in-law about. I hate this, I like this, I hate this, I like this, whatever it is. But something must be done, and they'll do it. But (sighs) the people that are behind this type of manipulation have so much power, they don't need government. The government manipulation of these regulations, these capital controls, is to distract you. It's the pretty lady that the magician has dancing around okay, in a low-cut, beautiful gown with a high-cut slit in the side. Everybody's eyes go to the pretty lady. That's the government regulations on finance. Because it doesn't actually affect any of the people that actually cause the problems at all, because they own the people that create the regulations. In fact, they write the regulations and hand them to their bitches, which are your government that you think is so important to vote for, and they do what they're told. And they give both sides two things that look different, but accomplish the same end to the same means for the people behind the curtain. Okay? That's the world you live in. And what that means is many of the capital controls that are being initiated right now and will continue to be initiated do not need government oversight or government force to initiate them. The bank has your money. It'll damn well do what it pleases with your money, and if you don't like it, it'll tell you to screw off, and when you try to leave and go to another bank, you'll find that they do the same thing because it's a big boys club that you're not in. Okay? So, one example would be, government in these situations where major recessions are coming, knowing that money goes where it's treated well, will set up regulations that say you can't move money out of the country. And the government's done that, but if you think it affects the people that actually run JP Morgan or the Federal Reserve or any of these major brokerage houses, you're insane. They can move their money anywhere they want to. It affects people like you and people that are worth, you know, a few to maybe 10 to 20 million dollars. It does not affect people that are billionaires. At all. Infinity. What the banks are doing, though, is instituting these controls on their own. Uh, You you can transfer money inside the United States, but you can't transfer it out of the United States over $10,000. What law says that, that's just our policy. And I've gotten tons of email from tons of you in the audience that have gotten uh, letters from banking institutions, most notably Chase, saying that they're putting limits on overseas transfers even though there's no governmental reason for it. This is just the beginning. Another thing that occurred in the last eight years was a move that I talked about, and to this day, as far as I know, I'm the only person that's really talked about this. Inside your 401k plans, for as long as I can remember, since I had my first job, first real job, there was always what you would call a cash option, a place where you could put 10% if you were young or 50% if you were old or whatever into good old-fashioned cash and make a point or two of interest on it like a bank account. Over specifically the last six years, those options have been removed. Government didn't remove them, no. No policies were made or laws were made inside of government or bureaucracy. They were made inside the brokerage houses and the overseers of the 401k accounts like Edward Jones and what have you in American Express. They did this on their own. Now, if you don't think they were talking to government while they did it, well, I have a bridge to sell you uh, that overlooks an ocean view in Arizona. But anyway, so what they did was this. They just basically took away the cash option. What does that do? Well, what it does is whatever amount of money you and every other American – in 401k accounts, now decides to keep safe, you find that the option you have is some sort of a bond fund, which is mostly United States Treasury bonds, which means they forced billions and billions of dollars into U.S. debt, thereby creating more turnover of the debt, and thereby starving off any kind of liquidity crisis to our creditors overseas, or to ourselves. In other words, if you could sell enough bonds... Right, The Ponzi scheme can run for almost forever. So when you can't sell bonds, you either buy your own, which is what the Fed does when it monetizes debt or quantitative easing, or you force your minions to buy the debt without knowing they're doing it. So if Granny won't go buy the savings bond at the bank anymore because she doesn't trust the President when he says it's safe on TV, we'll just change Granny's retirement account, or the soon-to-be Granny's retirement account, still working, so that the money goes there without her knowledge. That is one of the many things that have been done to implement capital controls inside your investments. So I know what I'll do is I'll show them. I'll invest in other bonds or I'll invest in stock mutual funds. Great. Well, have you noticed in your 401k, you get about 12 things to pick from? And if you talk to your friend that has a 401k in another company, you'll see they all look dramatically similar. Dramatically similar. Why? Because that way, the amateurization of all the money is the same. So when you say, oh, i gonna put my money in the stock market, well, you're leveraging the equity cycle. And eventually, when your, your 401k becomes a 301k and a 201k, as it tumbles down and you finally freak out and sell your equities. You can't pull your money out of your 401k without major penalties, which the government would love, because they get the money that way, okay? And the agency would love for the penalty that goes along with it. So the bank gets a penalty, and the government gets a penalty and a tax penalty when you pull that money out. That's why they hate Roths. They created too big a loophole and didn't realize it when they did it. But with conventional 401ks, man, this is just good when they bail. But most people won't bail. So what they do is they say, what's the safest thing that I have available? And that trusty old bond fund looks there. So in the middle of the crisis, when you finally bail out and exasperate the downfall of the equity, you bail into U.S. Treasury debt now. This was set in advance. Then the president came out with MyRA, which is the program where people right now are being signed up, unless they specifically opt out, for a program to invest their money into Social Security 2.0, which is government treasury debt, which is pushing more money into the the debt system. So they have this whole thing rigged up really, really well. This is like three-card money, but there's only two cards, and you still can't get it right, and they can every time. So more capital controls. The trap's been set, but here's why I don't think it's the big one. I think right now we are still seen as dairy cattle versus meat cattle. Okay, When a meat cow is ready to go to the table, you walk him into the slaughterhouse, you put a bolt to his head, goes through his brain, drops to the floor, hoist him up, bleed him out, make him into steaks, and, and, and sell it out on the market. Dairy cattle, you milk, and you milk, and you milk, and you milk, and you milk, till they go dry, and then you send them to the slaughterhouse and make them in a cheap burger. That's you. That's me. That's how we're viewed. We are still pawns on the chessboard. But the game is still going. That's why I don't think it's a big one, because they can continue it. This is the greatest financial scam ever enacted, and the greatest power scam ever enacted on the people of the world. You're not going to change it until you have to, because it works so well. So, it's not that they won't do it. It's not that they care if they destroy the middle class, but if they can make money doing it, then they want to do it as slow and for as long as possible to keep you believing in their system. That's why I said this is not another recession in reality. This is a continuation of the ongoing recession that truthfully began most earnestly in 1913 with the formation of the Federal Reserve. We now have a 98% devaluation of the dollar. We have taxed all the money in the world 98% in a tax that most people never see, known as inflation. In 1964, if I paid you $2 an hour in silver quarters, you'd still be, even with the repressed value of silver right now, better off if I was still paying you $2 an hour, the minimum wage, if I paid you in the same silver quarters. That's the commodity telling the truth. That truth telling always comes, and it's about to come again. But is it going to come in August? December, March, next August, I don't know yet. I don't know. I do know that the best position in the equities market right now are the equities that are immune from most of these problems. High profit earning dividend stocks, but they still have limited upside potential in the next six months. You really have to think about being more conservative with your money right now. And the profits that you have, if nothing else... Come up underneath them with stop losses so that you move your money out of those positions. If you don't know what that means, check out the Wealth Setting Podcast by John Pugliano. I can't go deeply into that today. Um, but it also has to continue because this is going to be global. This is going to be global. The reason I said it wouldn't go down last time, is a, as a final sinking of the USS, right, is that the rest of the world couldn't afford for us to go down. They were still tethered to our ship, so to speak. And because they were tethered to our ship, they couldn't let us sink. They had to play ball with us, even though most of the rest of the world is really fed up with the United States, specifically the United States and the Central European Bank and the Central Bank of London. These three financial institutions are really three heads of one beast, and they control the money of the whole world. So people like the Russians and the Chinese and the Indians and our buddies the Australians and the Brazilians and Argentinians really wouldn't care if we sank except if it's still entwined so much and they let us or the Europeans or the Brits or all three of us go down, we pull them under. So it's like when a big ship is sinking... And you get in a lifeboat, you got to start rolling your ass off. Because if that ship actually goes down fast and furious while you're too close, it could take you down with it. We're still there. We're still there. There is no one out there that can afford to let this all happen and just cut the tether from us and let us sink right now. The Chinese can't afford it. The Chinese have so much planned for the next ten years. And they need American dollars. But they loan us money. But it doesn't, see, this is what you don't get. It doesn't cost them anything to loan us money. They create their money in their own fractional reserve system, government-issued currency that they have a lot control on the float of. And they use that fake money, they convert it to dollars, which is also fake money, and loan it to us and take on our debt. But they use that. For the same illusion we do to prop up their economy, to pay their people, to run their slave factories and to sell garbage to the United States where people actually spend the closest thing to real money we have, hard cash, so that they can take it in through the importation-exportation market. They can't afford for that to go away right now. They can't. And they know they can't. People start have started talking about World War III. China and the U.S. are going to go to war. It's inevitable. Blah, blah, blah. It's the same bullshit as the Cold War. We were never gonna to go to war with the Soviet Union. We were never gonna to go to the war with the Soviet Union. We were never going to go to war with the Soviet Union and both sides knew it. Both sides knew it. The Soviet Union knew what it could do to control people with fear of the United States and the United States knew what it could do to control people with fear of the Soviet Union and both troops took a different path to getting it done. And it was basically an agreement. We'll do this, you'll do that, everybody will be scared, we'll freak out. And because there is some semblance of control by government, where government does do some things that the financial elite don't 100% control, there were a few times we got pretty close to blowing the shit out of each other, but in the end, it was never going to happen. It is less likely it will happen with China. It is less likely. Because the Chinese know they need us. And the Chinese are a pragmatic and logical people. And they know that the best way to take over a country is to let the country do the work for you. And we're so willing to put our heads in the nooses and the guillotines. There's no need for a military conflict. But they need us to be successful long enough until we all have our heads in the nooses. And we're not there yet. What will come of this? Remember, Susie Orman. You're going to be working till you're 70 now, but it's okay. After all, the people that are now going to be working till 70 are there because they followed her advice when they were going to be working till you're 65. She'll probably come out now and other minions like her and say, "Well, you're going to be working till you're 75, but it's okay." With her stupid pleather jackets and crap, no idea what the hell she's talking about. Um, as we do come out the other side of this, and we will. At least on paper, again, um, there will be major immigration reform. This amnesty stuff that you say you're going to stop and you're going to burn down the switches to the Senate and we got to get a Republican to the presidency so that it doesn't happen. You're going to get a Republican president in 2016 who will give you the immigration reform, which will be Amnesty 2.30. Okay? A Republican Congress and a Republican president. Will give you the immigration reform. They'll just tell you this is the good deal. Now that you got it, we gotta do it. And as they do this, yes, they will give a whole bunch of illegal aliens a whole bunch of tax returns that they're not entitled to under earned income credit, which is where people actually get a bigger tax return than the money they paid in. And that will cost the United States taxpayers millions and billions of dollars. But it doesn't matter. Because when they give them that money and they naturalize them so that they can come out from the shadows, so to speak, and move them onto payroll books, it will create a tremendous inflow of Social Security and Medicare taxes, which the government sees as just as good as income tax because as soon as the money shows up, they just steal it, leave an IOU behind, and use it in the general fund. Huh? And they will say, look at what this has done. We have a stronger, more diverse country. Because America always welcomes the immigrants, but we did it right. We made people get in the back of the line or some bullshit that won't even be true. What they'll do is they'll say, well, you have to go back to Mexico. Just like the Republicans have been saying they want. But no one will actually do it, and it won't actually be enforced. How do I know that? It's what government does. See, how do I know all this stuff? It is what these institutions do. If you study history, you know this is what these institutions do. The bankers make and control and inflate and deflate currencies. Government does whatever it has to to get as much of that money as it can so it can grow. And every time government grows even 1%, it has to grow by at least inflation thereafter for that 1% to maintain itself. The only way government can grow at the rate of inflation is to grow the size of government. Therefore, government will always grow. It will never get smaller. There will be no small government politicians. They'll talk about it. They'll never do it. Even the people that claim to want smaller government, tell them, you know what? Well, you know what we should do then? We should cut the biggest departments of government. Yeah, okay. So we should cut the military because that's the biggest expense that we have. I can't do that. Soldiers need what they need to do their jobs. Keep us free find them over here so they don't come over, you know, over there so they don't come over here. Yeah, but uh, don't you think in a just 800 million dollar department that there's some waste? Yeah, but we can't cut it from there. Oh, okay. Well, then the next biggest expense we have um is the 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 Social Security Administration and uh, payments and entitlements. That's the next single biggest expense we have. We have to Oh, you can't cut money from the old people. But there has to be people that are... No, you can't cut that. We'll do welfare reform. Oh, okay. But who's it going to affect? Oh, you can't do that. Children will starve. No cuts. So if you won't cut the two biggest expenses we have, how are you going to reduce the size of government? Try this again. Because I know some of you have a metal block here. If you refuse to cut the two single largest expenses in government, how will you ever reduce the size of government? The answer is you won't. We should cut DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Oh, God, terrorists will kill us. Even though you're more likely to be bitten by a shark than killed by a terrorist. And all of it's a facade. Have you noticed this? Just a little side note here. All of this ISIS, ISIL stuff, do you know... About the Sunni and the Shia thing? Do you, do you know what that's about inside the Muslim faith? You, you don't really need to. It's actually closer to what than you would think to the whole Protestant-Catholic divide with saints and stuff like that. But just leave it alone. Let's just say that they don't like each other, okay? Well, check it out. ISIS, ISIL, which we created, and people say, why would we do such a thing? Hold on. Is a Sunni movement, Okay. Another great big country you may have heard of that's already under Sunni majority rule is Saudi Arabia. That's why Saudi Arabia really doesn't give a shit about this. Um, The the, the horrific Islamic state that ISIS wants to create looks very much like life that's already there in in Saudi Arabia. Um, It really does. Now, if you went to Saudi Arabia and you went to Iran, you might not see a huge difference between the two countries. But if you were Islamic fundamentalist, you'd see a massive difference, especially if you happen to be in the minority. So, if you go to Iran, the Shia are the majority. And isn't it funny that all these nations we toppled all around Iran are all their enemies, and while we say they're the most radical, fundamental, dangerous Islamic terrorists in the world, they're pretty much just like our buddies in Saudi Arabia. We destabilize the entire region. We surround Iran with their enemies' control. And then we say, oh, yeah, let's, let's cut a deal with you guys on your uranium program. <sighs> yeah. But that's just an aside. How does that play into the coming uh, recessions? It does and it, it does not um, oil obviously will be a, a chief issue here. Oil prices will skyrocket, um, comparative to where they are now. Uh, Russia will, will, will begin to regain some stabilization, but Saudi Arabia can make quite a bit of money with oil prices where they are, so they can make an ass load of money. Um, so there's a big upside for our buddies there. And um, all of these countries that are being taken over by ISIS-ISIL, there's a big upside for them. And you'd say there's a big upside for Iran, but at what? The cost of the security of their borders. So there's just a little bit of, of play hanky-panky going around there. But I think a big thing is, you know, I talk about permaculture a lot and function stacking. Understand the people that run the world, they're really good at function stacking. It may not be permaculture, but it is the same design science, which is you make sure that one thing performs multiple functions. So... That's a big part of why we've destabilized all these nations and we've taken nations that we said were our enemies but were far safer and had a far far higher quality of living and were far more fair to women than they are now. There's no doubt that you are worse off as a woman in Egypt today than you were 10 years ago. There's no doubt you are worse off as a woman in Libya today than you were 10 years ago. And we're seeing that happen in Syria and you know, Jordan is probably... You know, even though they're an ally, they're probably checking their six quite a bit against us right now. I'm just saying. So, um, understand that this is all mixed together, and that we the, the, the big upside for us in this this whole recession thing is to tell us, you know, we can't cut spending on these important things to keep us safe. And as the, the the people of this country are squeezed harder and harder the more likely they are to rebel through a variety of ways. So the more control we need over them, so we use the threat of terrorism to sell people on giving up their own liberty. And there's been more done to extract our liberty by our own government since 9-11 than has been done by terrorists to, to diminish our own liberty since 9-11. And that's a fact. And one that no one can make a cogent argument against. And it will continue. This recession will be part of it. The big question, though, for everybody in the prepper movement is will they hit the big red button on, on this one? Will they, And that means different things to different people. What it means to me is revaluation or rebasing of the currency. Will they change the monetary system? And I believe the next monetary system change is actually going to be one that in some way goes back to gold and silver or gold only. And more likely gold than gold and silver because the bankers have a lot of gold and not much silver. Silver is a plaything for them. Gold is, they you know, they, they understand gold, they can manipulate gold, and they have tons of it. Um, this country, despite what you may have heard on conspiracy networks, has lots of gold. Fort Knox is not full of a bunch of bricks, spray-painted gold. It is full of a bunch of gold. The United States is probably better prepared than any other nation out there to go back to the gold standard or a gold standard. Now, see, the thing is, we will not ever go back to anything that we had before. What we'll go back to is some sort of gold-backed thing. Where, or, or it might be a, a commodity basket thing with gold as a piece of it. I don't know. But what it may enable is the eventual collateraliz- uh, collateralization of our debt. So what I mean by this is, for instance, there was a time when we lent money to Mexico. People were afraid we weren't going to get it back, so they collateralized their debt. Okay, uh, There was a couple different ways that we looked at doing it, but uh, they all made us look like we were being really predatory, and it was just because uh, the government, uh, when I say the government, I mean the Congress didn't want to give them the money, but we knew we had to give them the money, because it was going to create a major recession here if we didn't, so what we did is they collateralized their debt. In other words, they said, you know, if we can't pay you back, we'll, we'll, we'll give up oil leases and stuff like that. This new monetary system may, in fact, collateralize the United States' debt, which would basically sell us out to our foreign creditors. It may or may not. I'm not sure. But I just don't think we're there yet. I think we're at another let's load up the tables in the casino and let's skim off the profits. Let's take two bucks a hand and let's, let's see if we can do it again. That doesn't mean it can't be the big one. It can't be the remonetization of debt. It can't be the changing of the monetary system. Or there's other ways to do this. I mean, if you really look at it, we've had what I consider $5 collapses since 1913. 1913 actually being the first one and then we had the 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 closing of the the dollar for dollar gold standard uh, and repatriation and and confiscation basically or purchasing of gold uh under roosevelt which then took us to a position where we 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 still had a gold standard but we didn't really because we devalued the dollar against the gold and then we had the the coinage acts of 1964 where we demonetized silver from our coin base um So that was another, that was actually a full-on collapse of our money. That was a default. We defaulted on all the coinage in the United States. Now you might not think coins add up to much, but buddy, if you think about all the coin, it's a lot of money. And Gresham's law took over and the money came out of circulation, what have you, and it really had a nil effect on the treasury and the government because they just started making new money with cheaper metals. And they were actually making a profit to make the coin. So that was a default on the backing of our money, and then, of course, we had Nixon closing the gold window when the French started basically committing what you would call economic warfare against this country, and we just basically completely left the gold standard. Now, what had happened in the interim with Roosevelt is we outlawed the owning of gold, so we said people can 't own gold citizens can 't own gold and it was eventually later on in in seventy five that the gold was allowed, again, for private ownership. And that's why there was a surge in gold prices because we had suppressed gold by not letting it trade freely in the American market, which was the largest market in the world. And that was basically the revealing of the default that was uh, Nixon closing the window. So we had been lying for about 50 years about the value of the dollar versus the value of gold. And when the gold was let back into the market... Again, the market told us the truth. And it went way up, and it came down, and it leveled. And that's what commodities do. That's what commodities do when they're set free. They don't come up to their fair value. They blow through their fair value into an accelerated value, a false value. And eventually they come back through their fair value, and then they come up to it, and they level off. And then the whole system starts again with a suppression of the value through speculation by the people that control all the money in the world. So the more things change, the more they say the same. My dad would say it's the same old shit all over again. Yogi Berra would say it's deja vu all over again. This is the thing. Every time they run the cycle now, it gets worse. And worse. And worse. And worse. And worse. But they keep coming up with new ways to prop it up. I mean, this is the problem. This is why this we have to take this one seriously, even though I don't think it's the big one. Most of the cards have been played. The Fed can't cut the interest rates. It's already cut to, to, to nothing. Quantitative easing, we did that. We did that. But when we did, we pulled a lot of the bad, bad loans, the bad debts, the bad, bad bets off the market. We cleaned it up a bit. So the question is, can they get through this one? Again, I think they can. But I think if you do this, I think if you don't pay close attention, you dollar cost average, you do what all your financial advisors tell you to do for the next three years, you're going to lose a lot of money if you have a lot of money to lose, if you have a lot of money to lose, regardless of whether it's going to be a recovery or not. And let me kind of rewind back to the beginning of the show, not the beginning of this episode, but the beginning of the whole survival podcast for you. One of the things I explained a lot in the early days, and I haven't talked about much lately, is the misleading information from financial advisors. They'll show you, well, sure, the market dropped by 50%, but look at the gain the next year was 50%. That means that you you, you still lost 25%. You don't believe me? Sounds crazy? I mean, if the market went down by 50%, I'll buy 50%. no, let's do some basic math. Common core put away for a little bit. And we, basic old school math. Do uh, you have a hundred dollars in, in a stock? Stock cuts in value by fifty percent. Stock goes down to what? Fifty dollars. Okay. Next year, market rebounds fifty percent. You have a fifty dollars stock goes up by fifty percent. How much does it go up by? Twenty five dollars. Fifty plus twenty five is seventy five. Two years ago, you had a hundred dollars. Now you have $75 after the market recovered with an incredible 50% gain. (laughs) And I shit you not, if you go to a financial advisor and you exert your concerns about drops in the market and wanting to get out, they'll show you these big gains and talk about how you would have missed out on them had you gotten out. And now you know the truth. It's all bullshit. The fallout this time. I think we'll see a large number of major municipalities in default, a la Chicago, Detroit, more this time than we've ever seen before. I think we'll see the beginning of the death of the suburbs for some and the growth and explosion of other suburbs for others. A mass migration, um, from the failed experiments to the somewhat successful experiments. We talked about rezoning yesterday in Seattle. That's Seattle seeing the writing on the wall of all of these things and saying, we're going to need to compete for people. We need people here. People make tax base. Tax base makes money. Tax base money makes us staying in power and in control. Okay. This is a fundamental reality that I'm going to end with today so that you can understand all the paint and all the marketing that you see from government. This nation is so naive as a people that we actually still have faith in government. And I'm not talking about the, 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 the guy that cleans your streets or whatever. He's a person just like you with a job. That's not faith in government. That's faith in another individual. What I mean by faith in government is we actually believe that when we see a government say something to the effect of, there is a problem and it hurts you. And this will fix it, even when we... And I'm talking about the majority of the people on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans and Independents. Even when we don't think it's a good idea, we really think it is government trying to fix the problem for us. It just maybe they're wrong about how to fix the problem. We hear it all the time in presidential debates. We all want the same thing, right? We all want the same thing. We just have different opinions of how we get, how to get there. We all want better schools, we just have two different opinions of how to get there. We all want better pay for the average worker. Different opinions about how to get there. This is bullshit. This is bullshit. And I'm going to give you one of my my major lessons today in conclusion and, and in deciphering when you're looking at bullshit soup. Other than if it's coming from mainstream media, it's probably bullshit soup. When you read a government report, what you're seeing is an infomercial for a project a product. Okay, let's look the Ginsu knife. When you watch an in, uh, infomercial for the Ginsu knife, the purpose of, of the Ginsu knife is to slice a tomato thin after cutting drywall in a can. The purpose is to give you a great deal on a great product. Call now! Call now! Get two for the price of one. Call now. Okay? The people selling the Ginsu know it's a piece of shit. Okay? <laughs> but they develop a clever story with a practice expert in cutting, slicing, and selling to, to, to do the infomercial for them. The purpose of the infomercial is to make the people behind it lots of money. Not to slice tomatoes, and the knife doesn't even do that well. They just convince you it does, so that the real goal, them making a lot of money, can happen. Basic marketing, if you have no ethics and morals. Sell this piece of shit. Nobody's going to return it. We gave them two for the price of one. It's only thirty nine ninety five. They don't know it costs us 250 to make it and another 250 to ship it. And they don't know our profit margin is excessive on this. And it's not worth it for them to complain about it. And it will work sort of for long enough that they'll blame themselves when it doesn't. Okay? And they'll buy our next piece of shit next. Okay? That's infomercial marketing. <laughs> this is the government. When you read anything published by government whether it's money, whether it's any problem that you read about. But money is a convenient one. You have to understand that governments do not see a problem for their people and then seek to solve the problem. That's not how government works. What governments see when it comes to a problem is they see a problem for themselves. Okay, Even if it's a legitimate threat to the the country, the, the government sees it as a threat to themselves first. The question is not, how do we fix the problem for our constituents or our people or our citizenry? No. The question is, how do we fix this problem for ourselves? It's basic self-preservation instinct. I don't want anybody in my department to lose their job. I don't want to lose control. I want to expend my power base. Whatever it is, that's it. I want more power, and they won't give it to me. We could lose budget, and I don't want to. We could have to downsize this department, and I don't want to. We might lose control of this, and I don't want to, okay? So it's my problem that I'm going to solve. So the first thing they do is they formulate a problem for, a solution for their problem, not yours. Then they either create a series of problems for you, or they find problems that you have that they can link to their solution, and then they sell the solution to their problem to the people as a solution to said people's problem. Okay, so you you might imagine it works this way. The people are pissed and they might throw us out of office and they might call for real reforms to campaign finance, okay, and into into the financial institutions. So we'll blame somebody else for all these financial problems, like the banks, which are convenient. Then we'll exempt all the big banks and leave all the little banks that we want gobbled up anyway in the fray. Will create a campaign finance reform bill that will morph, and it's not really campaign finance anymore. Now it's financial reform. Oh, you we just made—we just talked about it till they forgot about it. We just kept talking about money long enough that they got upset, and they're upset about money because they're short on money right now. And financial reform is important. Campaign finance, just the campaign, kind of fell off. Right? This is. <laughs> God, this is what they did with the financial reform after 2008-2009 to the letter. And everybody starts louder. And whether people agree with it or not, what they want is to get everybody at least saying something has to be done. And then they say, well, this is the something. And as long as 51% will come on board with that something being good enough, they get that done. This solves their problem under the false pretense of solving your problem. The biggest problem that we're going to have in this next recession is there'll be more of that than any recession in history. With the exception maybe of the Great Depression. The Great Depression puts so many of the things that are holding us back into place that it's it, it really is to this day still unprecedented. But it will be akin to that. It will be akin to that. It won't be akin to that in soup lines. It'll be akin to that in... Solutions to problems that aren't really your problem. It's their problem. Because they want to preserve their own power and their own power structure and their own income bases and their own opportunities, not yours. So we need to, I think at this point, assess our preps for hard financial times more than anything else right now. I'm not about economic collapse. I'm talking about economic struggle. Everybody's waiting for economic collapse. No one understands we're standing in the middle of it. We're standing in the middle of it. Today on the website, on, on the Survival Podcast, if you go uh, to today's episode, you'll see some people in a boat. And there's four people in the boat. And the boat's kind of tipping down, and the boat's full of water on one end of the boat. And there's two guys with buckets just bailing their asses off, right? Right. And there's two other guys that are kind of sit back, kicked back at the bow of the boat. It's raised up in the air. It's nice and dry. Leg up on the on the rail. And the one guy says to the other guy, sure glad that hole isn't on our end. That's where we're at right now. We see all of the problems, but we're waiting for the ship to go down while it's filling up with water. And we're thinking that, that water coming into the boat, into the holes right now, that's not really the problem. And doesn't really affect me yet. It's the collapse I'm worried about. Well, it's all those little problems that are going to add up to create the collapse. But what you don't understand is just because the ship doesn't go down doesn't mean that the ship works. I remember one time I was out in one of my boats that I've owned in the past and it just wasn't riding, especially at slow speeds. It just wasn't running right. It wouldn't plane out. And what had happened, there's a little plug that you open at the end, that drains out the underdeck. And probably everybody that's ever owned a boat has pulled that out to drain it out, forgot to put it back in, and launched their boat sometime with that plug missing. And the boat would not perform. And the only way to get the boat to perform was just to throttle the piss out of it and basically blow the water out of it and reach down underneath and, and put the plug back in. You always keep an extra one in your glove box. And one time and not having it, and you'll remember two is one, one is done with the boat, and flip the bilge pump on and pump all the rest of that crap out of there, and then the boat will perform. That's that's the United States right now. The ship won't sail. And we think it's it's not yet because it's still not sunk. This isn't the Titanic. This isn't the Titanic. This is a lost ship. This is a ghost ship. And the people on it are slowly becoming ghosts. Economically, culturally, we're wasting away. We're wasting away because we're behaving like cattle. They're milking you like a cow. And I know individually you're gonna upset be upset about this. I'm talking about the totality, the majority of the people. They're milking us like cattle because we act like cattle. As long as they feed us and water us, we don't complain. We may bitch and moo and and, and stampede once in a while, but overall we pretty much just stay on our little piece of land, accept our brand, let them milk us, and we're more like the Maasai cattle. They milk us and they bleed us. Our blood and milk is too valuable to take our flesh. Occasionally they'll slaughter a few, and then they'll call them heroes. They'll send them overseas to die in a war that we never intended to win, And they'll tell you, if you speak ill of the war, you speak ill of the sacrifice of the man that they sacrificed on the altar. This is the world we live in. Buck up your preps, guys. Get ready for tougher times ahead. Those of you that wonder why I spend so much time talking about how to feed yourselves, I'll tell you more about that next week. I'll tell you the real story of people being starved to death. And I'll tell you the people who survived and how they survived from a personal level. But I'll tell you that it always comes down to this. The people that can make do with less and make very well to do with little are the ones that get through it. That's where you need to be. You need to be thinking right. More, more important than anything else, be thinking right. Don't go bail out of all your investments right now, but start evaluating them and start asking yourself, if I thought they were going to drop... What would I do? Answer, there's, there's your takeaway from today's show. There's no need to panic in the next 60 days. Okay. I'm just telling you. I don't know if you got longer than that. I think you probably do, but the world will not end between now and September. It really won't. Okay. But you need to ask yourself, if I decided today that my wealth was at risk, what would I move it to and be ready to do it? find out all the steps necessary, and if you say you're going to put all your money in gold and silver, I am going to tell you this. If I had the ability to find a genie that would grant me a wish, it would be that I had the magic power for the rest of my life to take every one of you that always thought, I'll just put all my money in gold and silver, and know it whenever you did it, and reach through my microphone and smack you in the ear for being a dumbass. Never put all your eggs in one basket. 10%. 10%, 15% 10%, 15% maximum. There's other safe havens for money. This time it's going to be cash. and some form of cash or dollars. And the good side to invest in may be the commodity side. We'll have John Pugliano weigh in on that this week on some levels. And we'll look at more creative ways to do that. But at least know where... See, there's times when you sail to the east, and there's times when you sail to the west... Because the seas are rough on one side or the other. And then there's times you bring the boat home, you tie it up to the dock. And a lot of times, the way you determine whether to sail east, west, north, or south is to take the boat to the dock and watch the radar for a while. And and that's the problem with most American investors, especially consumer-level investors. They don't have a dock. They don't have a place to pull back to and, and figure things out. They run from one thing to the next, or they just sail straight ahead. Either way is a great way to end up sunk to the bottom of the ocean. The United States economy does not have to collapse for your personal economy to collapse. Nine million people found that out the hard way last time. Be prepared this time. Be prepared. Prepare to feed yourself, clothe yourself, take care of yourself, provide for your own security, start thinking about the efficiencies of your energy usage, and get very, very diverse with your skill set, your knowledge, your ability to earn. That's how you prepare for this. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we of up there cares.